Good morning, everyone. Aren't you guys so glad that at our church we do the kids' message with everyone in the room? And that was really good for me to hear this morning. It was a good reminder for me. Some of you, that's all the word you needed to hear from God today. And if you go home with just that in your heart, I think you'll go home full. And I know that that's the case, that you, you catch up on your sleep when I'm speaking, but during the kids' message, sometimes God just really meets you, that simple, short word of truth. And if that happens, that's a wonderful thing. Um, I do hope that you won't fall asleep, that you will track with me, because this morning, I think the message is especially relevant to so many people who live in our culture today. The title of the message is Taming the Tongue. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I, I get the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. We've been working our way through the epistle of James, a letter that the younger brother of Jesus wrote to the scattered church all around the region. And it's a really interesting book, so practical in the way that it approaches the Christian faith. And this is probably one of the points where James gets the most practical and we, where we will find the most relevance to our own lives, some of us, in this particular message. So we're going to draw from James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. That picture, if it's not self-evident, will make sense shortly. Okay? Here's the passage. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and, they, and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poisons. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Amen. That's the word of God. Uh, what's the button to make it black out? Bottom? It's not working. There it goes. So I want to ask you, have you ever had the experience of deeply regretting the words you spoke or wrote the very minute that they left you? Have you ever had that experience where you said something, the minute you said it, you're like, oh, man, I wish I could unring that bell. Or maybe it's the moment after you hit that send key and an email or a text message, and isn't it annoying that there's no way to pull back? I guess it's the way it's always worked with mail. I mean, you get in big trouble if you're caught with your hand reaching down into a U.S. mailbox. But there are times when you sincerely wish you could take back words that have exited out of you. If, I'd be surprised if there's anyone in this room who hasn't had that experience. In fact, it's widely said of some people that the only time they open their mouths is to change feet. Have you heard that saying? The only time they open their mouths is to change feet because they're always putting their foot in their mouth. You can't unsay a word. And if you want to become a billionaire, you can do so if you can invent this device in real life. Wouldn't you love to have that? Just, you know, if you say something you really regret and just go, hey, look at this, bloop, and they just forget completely everything you just said, you'd be a billionaire if you can make that device. Because to be human is to live all the time with regret over the things you've said and done. And from the time we're children, we're taught this simple phrase Sticks and stones 
may break my bones, but what? Words can never hurt me. And I think what we're trying to teach children is fortify your self-esteem. Don't let people with just a simple word destroy you. And even though we teach them that, the problem is that the wounds caused by sticks and stones, broken bones heal. But the truth is sometimes the wounds caused by words last an entire lifetime. Some of you know exactly what I'm saying because words spoken to you in hatred or anger or neglect have shaped your entire life. For others, you've experienced that pain or you're the one who is giving it out to others around you that you care about. And you know every day you just you sit there with this guilt, this, this regret. Man, if only they hadn't said that to me or if I hadn't said that to them. And so even though this is a well-meaning teaching that we give to children, the truth is it's a lie. Quite the opposite is true. Sticks and stones might hurt you, but they, they won't kill you. But words can destroy you from the inside out. Words have more power than fists. And I think James understood the inherent power of words. We live in a culture that tells us exactly the opposite. Oh, it's just words. Disregarded. They're just syllables. They're, they're sounds, phonetics that come out of a mouth. They mean nothing. But that's absolutely not true. Words have great, great power to shape, build up, or destroy. And so James teaches, and he devotes almost the entirety of chapter 3 to this topic of taming the tongue, of being careful how we use our words. And let's just be, be clear about this. Whenever the, the Bible talks about the tongue, it's not really talking about, eh, you know, like you're, you're licking dirty things and so you're sinning. With you. It means words, how you use the words that so glibly fall off of our tongues. And the first thing I want to I see here in this passage with you is that we are accountable for every word. We are accountable for every word. Now, I'm going to give you a warning up front that good news is coming towards the middle of this message, but the first half is the bad news. So don't walk out in the middle because then you're going to walk out unnecessarily despairing. We have to confront the bad news honestly so that the good news is truly welcomed as God's salvation for us. So here's the bad news. We are accountable for every word. James opens this passage with a very strange, seemingly out-of-the-blue statement. He goes, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And most of you read that and you just kind of gloss over it and you move on. Guys, like me, we get stuck there, very stressed out by this verse. Doggone it. Not many of you should become teachers. Well, what if you are? And I'm not talking about elementary school teachers. We're talking here, James is referring to those who stand in front of others and teach God's word, spiritual, religious principles. Don't be too quick to stand up and say that because you will be held to a different standard. Now, why does James open with this and then not address the topic of teachers at all? Well, he says, look, I know a lot of people want to be teachers, especially in his day, because a teacher was afforded great respect and honor in society. But he said, you will be judged by a stricter standard. And maybe he's saying this because there was a problem, an actual problem in his church with people standing up and saying, I speak for the Lord. And then they were using their words very destructively or irresponsibly. So it may be in response to a real problem, but I think there's a different meaning here, a different point. I think James is seizing on the example of teachers to make a broader point, which is this. In the same way that teachers will be held accountable for their words, all of us will give account for every word that we've ever spoken in our lives. Now, teachers are especially vulnerable to sinning with their words because their work requires them to speak so much. I realize when I get home sometimes, I don't have a lot of words left over for my kids My wife, because my whole job sometimes, it feels like talking, listening and talking, listening and talking. And the more you talk, the more chance you run of doing something bad with your words. I know that's true of me as a pastor. If you ask me advice about anything, even if I have no qualifications to answer you, I feel responsible to give it a stab. And I might even lead you to believe I have some some knowledge about this and I can help you when, in fact, maybe I can't at all. And so where there are, and Proverbs 10, 19 tells us, where words are many, sin is not absent. I think that's true. So I think James is seizing on the example of teachers to make a point which his brother also made in Matthew 12, 36 to 37. His brother being Jesus, of course. Jesus said, 
But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty, another translation would be careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. What Jesus is saying is that we will stand before God and one day answer for every word that escaped our lips, even the ones at the moment we didn't think meant anything. That's what he means by the empty ones or the careless ones. Even the words like, you're such an idiot, and you walk away because you're too busy. You're trying to get out to the, the door to go to work, and your kid's acting like a dummy. You go, you're such an idiot, and you just walk out, and you don't think at all about those words. Empty, careless, quick, drive-by shooting. It just sort of fell off the table, and it's a crumb sitting there. But to your kid, that word lingers all day. I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I don't know anything. I'm stupid. And you say those words enough times, the person starts to think it's true. To you, just empty, careless. But to that person, it's a lifetime's worth of reinforcement. What Jesus teaches is that every one of us will one day stand before God and answer for every word we have spoken. Now, that's part one of the bad news. Just leave a bookmark there. Don't give up yet. Okay? Here's the second thing that James teaches. He says, now listen, not only will we give account for every word, but words, even the ones we don't think are powerful, have tremendous power, more power than you could possibly imagine. Listen to the example he gives us. And these are not original to James. He's not the first guy in the ancient world to think, oh, look, you can control a horse with a bit or steer a ship with a rudder. Everyone knew that. These were self-evident analogies. But he gives them to us. He says, you put a bit into the mouth of a horse and you can steer or control that horse. You take a small sliver of wood, put it under a boat, and that entire ship will be steered by which direction you point that rudder. That's the idea, isn't it? That a large thing, so a 150-pound, give or take a few, 150-pound guy like me can sit on top of a 1,000-pound beast, and by pulling on a leather strap, I can control that animal to go where I want it to go. And one man sitting in the bridge controlling a helm that is attached to a rudder can steer a massive ship the size of a floating hotel with maybe 1,000 passengers on board, just by turning a wheel. And the, the idea is this. Words have that kind of influence in our lives. Words shape the world around us. You may think bricks and mortar and hands and sweat and elbow grease, but all of those things flow out of words which are a window to our hearts and our minds. Words make the world because words reveal what's really inside of us. Have you ever... And here's, here's a strange way to make this point, an illustration... Have you ever wondered at why so many um, successful singers are also so good-looking? I mean, you go, is that even fair that someone should be able to sing so well and be so hot? I don't get how that works. And I realize maybe it's not just coincidence. Maybe there's a causal relationship here. Because I think if you're cute, you grow up your whole life hearing all the time, oh my, you're so adorable, you're so cute, you're so pretty, ooh, he's so dreamy. And you hear that stuff all the time, and guess what happens to you? You don't mind standing in front of people. You don't mind taking risks. You don't mind drawing attention to yourself. Because guess what? Everyone is reinforcing to you, hey, you're awesome. Looking at you makes my day better. Other people make my eyes hurt, but you are like a massage to my eyeballs. Do you know what I'm talking about? And when you hear that, do you think there's possibly any relationship to me wanting to stand in front of people? And, oh, and did, you, did you like that? Even if you stink at singing, just stand up there. Just let us look at you. I think there's a causal relationship. I think in the days before music videos, there were a lot. Of, look at Rico Kasich from The Cars and guys like that. You know, Mick Jagger. I wonder if Mick Jagger could have become famous in the days of MTV. He's not a good-looking man. All right? I don't want to be a judgmental, but he ain't exactly supermodel material. But his music rocked a generation. And I wonder, why is it then, 
if there's no relationship, because what does one have to do with the other? Why should being good looking and being a good singer have anything to do with each other? Do you get that? And yet it seems to. And that's why when we see American Idol or America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent and someone kind of strange and not model-like, very impish-looking, comes up and, I'm going to sing. And everyone's like, whoa. And by just looking at him, this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad. Why? Why do we do that? And then when they sing with the voice of an angel, everyone goes, oh, and the whole room gasped. And how's that person feeling? What's that all about? Like, you took one look at me expecting me to be a bad singer. We we look at a guy like Paul Potts, and, and he stands up there, and everyone's going, oh. And then he starts singing, and you're like, O-M-G. And the surprise comes from the fact that we know this is true. That the words we speak to people have so much to do with how they see themselves and what they end up doing in the world. Paul Potts just had a movie made about his life, and God gave him an indomitable spirit so that even if words of destruction were spoken all his life, he was deaf to them, and he overcame And he stood in front of a crowd and sang. His dream came true. Now, in that movie, Taylor Swift wrote one of the big songs for that movie. She said Paul Potts inspired her. And they met each other at this music festival. And you see the two of them. If I told you they were a couple, you'd assume he's very rich. Because, (laughs) look, look, that just looks... You, you know what I'm saying? We, we're in a superficial visual society. When you find out Taylor Swift can sing, nobody bats an eye. Oh, yeah, of course she could sing. I mean, she's hot. But Paul Potts, and do you see what we do to each other all the time? Words that we say to each other, that we say to ourselves, oh, I can't get up there. No one wants to see me. Those words shape the entire course of a human life. James goes on to say, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And he says, look, an entire forest is set ablaze by one single spark. We learned that ever since we were kids when Smokey said, you know, only you can stop forest fires. Fire is an interesting thing. With just that one little spark, acres and acres, dozens of square miles of forest, just like that, destroyed. Because fire has a way of spreading. Fire has a way of spreading. And what James is saying here is not only do words have tremendous influence over the world around us and over our own lives, but that very often the influence of words is destructive like fire is. That once you say a word, it is no longer entirely within your control. The only time you have control over your words is before they exit your mouth. Once they've exited, you no longer get to say to people, oh, please don't be hurt by what I just said. I didn't mean it. Too late. It's too late to tell people how to feel about the words you said because once you say a word, a spark ejects from your mouth and you don't get to control what that that spark sets ablaze. And so often what happens is the little spark you coughed up thinking it was nothing starts a fire in someone else's life or a rumor in a church or a family or a neighborhood that does not stop until the destruction is complete. Many of us have lived through such an experience, haven't we? Where you didn't even mean to start this much trouble. I mean, do you know the Boxer Rebellion in China was started by four Denver journalists who did not have a story to file, so they just made one up. And as a result, China, which was already kind of um, phobic of foreigners at the time, started killing every missionary and diplomat in the country. Hundreds of people lost their lives because four guys wanted to pull a prank. And afterwards, they said, oh, our bad. Yeah, that's just not enough. And they never intended to start the Boxer Rebellion. But once you say something, you don't get to tell the world how to respond to what you just said. Any more than you can fart in the elevator and say, everybody, please don't be bothered by what I just did. (laughs) That's not a power you have. Once you've done it, it's done. It will affect us the way it affects us. How many lives have been permanently scarred, defined by words like, you're so stupid, you're so ugly, you're not very talented, you can't do this. 
And let's remember also that a great amount of damage is done by the words we withhold. Words we are responsible to say to each other that sometimes we never do. How many of us are to this day starving for one word of approval from a parent that all our lives we wished would say to us with pride, genuine pride and affection, I am so glad you're my kid. I'm so proud of you. Many of us heard those words, but some of us grew up never once hearing them and our hearts still in adulthood are waiting and longing for those words. Words have tremendous power and often the power is destructive. So there's bad news part two. You're going to be held accountable for every word. And part two is a lot of those words you spoke have started fires and some people's lives are in ashes because of the sparks that flew out of your mouth. I'm I'm the one preaching. I'm getting depressed. But we're in church. And so good news is coming. Just wait for it. Here's number three. This is the last of the bad news before we get to the good news. As much as, as we're going to be held accountable for our words, and our words have great power, it's, in, it's, it's incumbent on us to tame our tongue because of those reasons, but we just can't. The tongue, it turns out, is untamable. It's untamable. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed. Now, in the days that, G- that James was writing, the animal kingdom was largely regarded by people as mysterious. Zoos were not a common occurrence. People, the only time they saw a wild animal was just before it ate them, right? So that's the world people lived in. It's like, oh, lions are all bad. Don't get near them. And so when a human being was able to tame a wild animal, it was a source of great pride and wonder. And that person, once they tamed this beast, can make a living going from town to town, Showing off, look at this wild beast, and I have tamed it. We are still doing that 2,000 years later. I mean, look at this. And every once in a while, there's animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures. It's like we're just fulfilling the Bible generation after generation, and we still marvel. Wow. Once in a while, like with Siegfried and Roy, or with chimpanzees attacking and pythons strangling their their owners in their sleep after they get out of the cage. You hear these stories, horror stories, of the fact that they're reminding us, hey, we're still animals, okay? We're still very wild. But when we tame them, it's a major accomplishment, isn't it? And yet James says, for all the success we've had in taming animals that should really be killing us all the time, no human being has successfully tamed their own tongue. You can try, you can get a pretty good stretch like Roy Horn did, and then one day, that tiger goes, what am I doing? I'm a tiger, ow, and just bite you, just like that. Tiger's going to be a tiger. You can watch your mouth for only so long, but if that's where you focus, you will discover the truth of James's words. You can't tame this thing. You can try real hard, but it will eventually show its true colors. I've tried all my life to control my words, even the ones I don't say out loud, but only in my inside voice. Do you have that that second voice of yours, that whole set of words no one else hears but you? I've tried to control those words, and I've proven in my own life the truth of James's words. But here's where we turn the corner into the good news. Look, Let's review here first. Here's the bad news. We will be held accountable for every word. Our words can influence and destroy lives. And it's imperative that we tame our tongues. No one is able to do it. Hey, thanks, James. Really appreciate that very eloquent presentation of how messed up our lives are. But here's where he begins to take a turn towards good news. Notice the careful phrasing of verse 8 where he says, no human being can tame the tongue. Remember his earlier illustrations about the bit in the horse's mouth and the rudder on a ship. Well, if you know anything about horseback riding or sailing a ship, even if you don't know much about them, you know this. Ships don't steer themselves and horses don't steer themselves. There is a hand at the other end of that bit or that rudder. Someone's got to turn the helm and somebody's got to hold the reins. 
Otherwise, that horse will go nowhere. And so it's not, it's not a matter of trying to control it. It's who's holding the reins, who's holding the helm. That's what matters supremely. If you try to control or tame your own tongue, you will find after a lifetime you've never succeeded at doing it. But he embeds a little bit of hope in this saying, look, no human being, you're not unique in this. No human being can do it because that's the nature of fallen humanity is try as we might. We will never succeed in controlling our words perfectly. Now, here's the thing. I heard one Jewish rabbi in a commentary write this. He would travel around teaching this. Try going one day without sinning with your words. Just one day. Try to go one 24-hour period in which you don't discourage anyone, you don't curse anyone, you don't say anything destructive or self-destructive or judgmental. Try going one day without using your mouth to make negative words. How many of you feel like you might be able to do it? 24-hour period where every word is positive and God-honoring. Okay, some of us. Okay, thank you, Don Boardman. Yeah, so other than Don, I think the rest of us would be challenged to do this, right? Here's what that rabbi said. If you could not go one day without taking a drink of alcohol, we would call you an alcoholic. If you could not go one day without smoking a joint, we'd say you're addicted to weed. If you cannot go one day without porn, one day without TV, one day without whatever, you would be an addict. So what does it tell us if we cannot go one day without using our words destructively? Could it be that we are simply addicted to doing damage with our words? That our mouths are in fact weapons, tools for evil rather than tools for blessing? And that begins to give us some insight into what's wrong here. It might be that not, not just that our hearts are weak, but that we're addicted to a habit which God himself desires to correct. And the first step of recovery from addiction is to admit that you have a problem. Hi, I'm Dave, and I'm addicted to bad words. I know that's true, because even with my own children goofing around, I still insult them on a regular basis. I just want to say I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, daddy doesn't mean it, but I'm a weak man. So let's get full bore into the good news and ask this simple question. Where do words come from? Mommy, where do words come from? James says, with our tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Here's the duality of it. Out of the same mouth. I just picture an Italian guy going, you kiss your mother with that mouth? You know, when, when you hear someone swearing like a sailor, you're like, you kiss your mother with that same mouth? You praise your God with that same mouth? You filthy. It, you know, it's like that. How could this be that out of the same mouth, we sing, I love you, Lord. I hate your guts, but I love you, Lord. How, how does that coexist? Right? How does that coexist? Do you use your toilet at home as a punch bowl? Well, you laugh, but why not? Because dirty and clean should not be coexisting that way. That's just too intimate. It's too close for dirty and clean to live together. And yet every day in our mouths, we've got a punch bowl and a toilet just happily coexisting. And James looks at that and goes, guys, this should not be. Something's messed up about this this observation. And this harkens us back to chapter 1, verse 8, where James says, this is the nature of people who are double-minded. Do you remember that? The double-minded person is unstable in everything they do. Because the the ultimate decision of who they belong to, who dominates, who controls their heart, has not yet been decided. They are straddling two worlds saying, I kind of like God, I kind of like the world, I haven't made up my mind yet. I want the best of both worlds. And Jesus will look at us, James will look at us and say, that doesn't work. If you're double-minded, then all you're going to find in your life is constant instability. 
Where one day you'll feel really convicted about something, the next day you'll be addicted to something, and it's just all over the place. There's no integrity to your life because you are of two minds. You love one system, you love the other system, but the two systems, it's like saying, honey, listen, I love you and I love her. Can't we all just live together? Guys, try, try that one day. See how your wife likes it. If you have a wife, try, your, try that on your girlfriend. Look, baby, I love both of you. The same. Can't we all just coexist? No, that's the simple answer. You try to pull that off, what your life will look like and feel like and sound like is unstable in everything you do. And so James is pointing us that the answer here, the reason for this inconsistency in the way our, our, our words are formed is that, that somewhere upstream of the words is a deeper issue that needs to be resolved. And that is this. The decision for the mastery of your heart is still undecided. It's because Jesus has not won the fight for your heart that your mouth is both a punch bowl and a toilet bowl altogether. See, I really believe the mouth is simply a, a conduit. It's like the speaker system, but it's not the source of the music. Words don't come from the mouth. They come from the heart and the mind. The mouth is just a servant to the heart and the brain. The way the NLT translates 1.8 is very insightful. Speaking of the double-minded person, it says their loyalty is divided between God and the world. So if you find this is a problem for you, that one day you're sitting in church and you're caught up in worship and you really are zealously singing to God, and in that moment you really dig Jesus. But then, 30 minutes later in the car, driving home, you are cursing out people in your own family. You're flipping off other motorists who are stupid enough to cut you off. And you go, I just hate my life. I hate the world. I hate everything. Ah! And in both places, you are genuinely feeling those things. And you're going, what is my problem, honestly? How do both of these voices exist in one person? And what James is telling us is it's not that you have two voices. It's that you have two hearts. That your heart somewhere in there is divided down the middle. And what Jesus is inviting you to is to surrender the remaining portion to him and say, let me just have all of you, and then we'll begin to bring integration into your life. We'll make you a whole person. You won't be a schizophrenic with one voice here and one voice there, but your heart will start to feel whole as I gain mastery over the whole thing. Are you with me? When James hints at this, that words don't come from the tongue, but they come from the heart. He's echoing the words of his brother Jesus, who said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 35. He's he's talking to some some, uh, Pharisees on this occasion. And he says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. What he's saying here is, By what comes out of a person, you have a sense of the real story of what's inside that person. He he illuminates this even further. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Did you catch that? That's why it's really an insincere apology when you say, sorry, I didn't really mean it. Of course you kind of did. Otherwise, it wouldn't have spilled out of your mouth when you were jostled. Right? The things we say when somebody's nagging us or irritating us, and we just take that little, you know, like a little prison shank, just a little stab there, and it's not fatal, but you want to hurt them a little. What do you say? What do you say? Oh, as if you're such a perfect guy. You know what, what, what some people say to me? Uh, you call yourself a pastor? Sometimes my kids say that to me. Dad, you call yourself a pastor? That's very piercing. <laughs> very judgmental. You know, I, I receive it. But what they're saying is, you know, Dad, at this moment, we don't think you're a very good pastor. <laughs> There's hypocrisy in your life, brother. And the truth is, they can't later go, Dad, sorry we said that we didn't mean Yes, you meant it, and it's true. 
Because the heart speaks, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You can think of your heart as a cup filled to the brim, and every time it's jostled, its contents spill over the brim. You can't hide what's in your heart because it always comes dribbling out of your mouth. (laughs) I really wish I hadn't said that, but I guess that's what's in there. Venom, spite, darkness. I guess that's all in there too. I also, when I praise Jesus, mean it. And that's the strange thing, isn't it? So this inconsistency tells us the mouth is a window to the heart. And when the mouth is schizophrenic, the heart is divided. So how how did that graphic end? How to tame your tongue? Anyway. How to tame your tongue. James says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? And really what he's beginning to say is this. You cannot tame the tongue by focusing on the tongue. It's just a speaker. You can put an incredible speaker system and it can't make a bad song good, can it? Right? It can't make a bad song good. You can play it on the best sound system in the world and I will not listen to a single Justin Bieber song. You can't make me. It's not the acoustic quality that bothers me. It's the music itself. And so what James is saying is, if you compare it to a a tree or a, a spring, everything you see speaks to where its source is. An apple tree cannot suddenly make oranges. Even if it has an affair with an orange tree, it's going to keep making apples, right? It's just what it is. You have that branching out there, pop, pop, pop. Oh, look, I can't hide. This is who I am. And James is saying, if you really want to control your tongue, you've got to bypass the tongue and go deeper. In the same way that you don't just treat a skin lesion, you've got to treat often what's underneath there, what's actually causing the problem to occur. There's an exhibit at the Exploratorium Museum in San Francisco that fascinates me. It's called a sip of conflict. They take a toilet. It's an unused brand new toilet, but they turned it into a drinking fountain just to see if people can get over the instinctive revulsion of drinking from a toilet bowl. Now, I'm going to hijack this exhibit to make a point. If that were, in fact, a filthy toilet in a public gas station restroom and they just attached a spigot, no matter how thirsty you were, would you drink from it? Um, come on, let's just, let's just admit it. Gas station bathrooms are nasty. Unless you own a gas station, yours is probably very clean. <laughs> the truth is, most of them, I don't even want to pee into it. That's how dirty they are. Okay? Would you drink from it? Now listen, if there were a bathroom in a gas station and we had a nozzle there, could you make it better just by taking a Lysol wipe and cleaning the spigot? I'm going to just get that part where the water comes out, get it nice and clean. See, the spigot is not the problem. It's the source of the water that's the problem. Do you get that? And that's why us trying like Pharisees really hard to watch our language. Oh, I'm not going to swear anymore. I'm going to say H-E double hockey sticks. Oh, fiddlesticks. Oh, shucks. Oh, good night. Oh, snap. And we're going to keep trying to control our words. And the problem is it's not our mouth that's betraying us. It's our heart. The source of the problem is what Jesus wants to address. And if he will dominate that source, the words coming out will form a more consistent picture of who we are. James leaves that tension hanging in chapter 3, but in chapter 4, he resolves it for us in a very important way. In verses 7 to 10, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Now, he says to us, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. When he says wash your hands, he's not saying that you are actually able to make yourself morally clean. But he's saying come before God and acknowledge your dirtiness and repent earnestly. And as you throw yourself at his mercy... He will do the hard work of making you clean. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. As long as you stop being defensive, as long as you stop shifting blame and own up to the fact that my corrupt words rise out of a divided heart, 
and you beg God to come and make your heart whole, for him to win the battle for your heart, you will start to use your words for blessing rather than destruction. So what does this look like practically? This is unbelievable. It's only 1120. What does this look like practically? Let me give you a picture of how this whole process works. What we know for sure is that we saw those four points of bad news in the beginning, right? You'll be held accountable for every word. The words we speak are very powerful and potentially destructive. And it's imperative we tame our tongues, but we just are unable to do it. So that's the bad news. You cannot fix this problem by monitoring your words very diligently. And so James says the solution is to have God come in and win the dominance over the soul, the source of those words, to make the heart clean so that the words become clean. What does this look like? I think the first step is pay attention. Don't just feel bad about your words or try to do damage control after you've said the words. Pay attention to the words coming out of your mouth. Every time I say that, I, I picture Chris Tucker in, in that rush out. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Well, say that in the mirror once. Do you understand the words that are coming out of your mouth? If you listen to the words you say, they will tell you a great deal about what well you're drawing from. It'll tell you a lot about the state of your heart. Listen to how you talk. Listen to what you say and listen to what you don't say. I guess you can't really do that, but pay attention. Be reflective. Pay attention to what you're really saying. Why do I say that? Why am I not saying that? Why is it that when, when my parents ask me questions, all I answer is, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, good, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Why am I like that? You can just keep telling people, I just, that's how I am. But why? And so that's the second thing. Reflect specifically. All right, I said something nasty. That much I know. I own that. But where is that coming from? What are those words telling me about the way I think or feel about the world around me? What are they revealing about my heart? I'll give you some practical examples of this in a minute, so you'll, you'll actually see it. But I'm going to give you the third step of the process. When you see that the words you've spoken destructively come from something really wrong or corrupted in your heart, repent earnestly. Don't shift blame. Don't say, well, I wouldn't have said it if they weren't such a jerk to me. They're going to have to answer to God for being a jerk. You're still going to have to answer to God for the poke you took with the knife. You cannot stand for it, but your honor. They made me do it. They can't make you do anything. No one can make you do anything. So it's important that we stop saying the world makes me like this. And some of us, that's just what we keep saying. It's our habit. Hey, look, I'd be perfect if all of you were perfect. It's all your fault that I'm not perfect because all of you have messed up and that's why I'm just like you. That's the problem is that there isn't a posture of repentance that says, you know what? Maybe the world stinks, but I'm going to take my ownership. I'm going to take responsibility for my part in making it uglier. And then as you repent earnestly, receive the forgiveness that comes because it always will. Let me give you a fourth step. Then ask humbly, God, I've seen that I've spoken these words from a very dark place in my heart. Come and change this thing about my heart. This way that I think or feel habitually, the way I look at the world, change it. Because if you don't change that, God, I'm going to keep saying those same kinds of words. And then finally, submit consistently. Don't repent and move on and say, this is not an issue for me. It will likely be an issue for you for the rest of your life. I'm the senior pastor of a church and I'm 46 years old. That means for 30 years, I've been sinning behind the wheel of a car. Lately, I've noticed it's escalated. My family, I haven't noticed. It's more, I've seen it reflected in the faces of my children and my wife. They're like, what is your serious problem lately? Why are you so short-tempered? And I catch everything. I don't always let on, but I catch everything. And I, I see in their faces of horror and dis- disapproval, that something's going on with me. That lately, my, what's the kind word? Complete hatred for other motorists is, 
at an all-time high. <laughs> I just am driving around with this theory in my head that everyone else behind the wheel, except the members of this church, uh, is a complete moron and can't drive and should be imprisoned immediately. That, that's how I feel, and it's not right, and I'm starting to lose my cool behind the wheel. And I've been reflecting about where this is coming from, and God has shown me some very interesting things lately about myself. Because I've been reflecting specifically about why I'm cursing everybody under my breath. So I want to invite us, just in some time that we have remaining, to enter a period of responding to the Lord, of being a little reflective. And we won't go too long with it, but I think it's important when you hear things like this to have a chance to just pause and think, is this possibly an issue in my own life? Let me give you some examples how this process here might work out. Maybe I snap at somebody for pointing out a fault in me. Hey, you know, I noticed you're always late to church. Yeah, what? Like you're always perfect, but you're never late to anything? Whatever. Shut up. Now, does that sound like something you might have said once when you're in a bad mood? Am I the only person who forms words like that in my head? Come on, give me a break. You guys all say stuff like that to each other, right? And you know if you're paying attention, that was not good. That is not an okay series of words or attitudes for me to have. That's the pay attention part. Do you at least have a smoke alarm in your house? You know, like, do you know when the words you've spoken are sparks that are causing fires? Do you know it? So you go, oh, ho, ho, ho. All right, I'm still feeling the heat of that anger, but I know enough to say that's not good. Then you reflect specifically, why am I like that? Why do I attack people for pointing out flaws in me? Am I saying, doggone, I'm deeply committed to lateness and tardiness to church? It is morally reprehensible for people to show up on time or even early to church. No, you're not defending it, but why are you saying it? Why are you punishing the messenger? Because you realize it's hard for you to admit your shortcomings. Or maybe it's because you realize that your tardiness is not your fault, but it's your darn kid's fault or your wife's fault or someone else's fault or that stupid driver who did not go at the green light. And There's a lot of stuff going on for you, and that's why you became so short-tempered when that person confronted you. The more specific you are, the more you'll recognize, why did I say those words that I don't want to define the kind of person that I am? Why did I do it? And as you understand the heart, you say, you know what, Lord? I repent that it's so hard for me to own up to my shortcomings. That I walk around this illusion that I'm perfect and sinless sometimes. When the truth is I know that they were right. And I need to just own that. Forgive me for punishing someone who had the guts to say something to me. And then you say, God, would you come and change this part of my heart that's so defensive? That's so quick to retaliate that is not able to receive correction in a healthy way. Make me less proud, more humble. I'm begging you to do this. Do you see how it works? Be attentive to the words you say, even the ones you're not saying that you should say, and figure out why that's happening. Repent, and then specifically ask God to come into your life and start working on that part of your heart that has gone wrong. So I want to invite you to just enter a period of reflection. I mean, maybe your sin of words, so you're chewing your kids out for bad habits they have, realizing that you're not extending the same grace and patience you need when you're stuck and can't change. Maybe you lost your temper at someone for nagging you when really the issue is you need to be better at keeping your promises and managing your priorities. I don't know what your sin of words are, but words have great power. And so why don't we take a moment to go through this process, to pay attention, to be specifically reflective, to repent, and then invite God to come into the source, the heart, and begin working. Why don't we just spend a few minutes doing that, and then in about three or four or five minutes, I will pray for us. So let's take a little time personally responding to the Lord in this area. It's possible that as you're praying, Holy Spirit is bringing to mind people you care about 
who you've deeply wounded with your words. It's possible that you're realizing you've really never apologized and repented to them for the destructive force your words have had on their heart. It's possible that the very things you hate about them, you're reinforcing through your destructive words. And if God has impressed upon your heart a person in your life who you have wronged with your words, it's important first that we just pray a prayer of blessing and covering over that person, that God would heal and repair the damage we have caused. And that we ask him to give us the courage and humility to stand before that person and deeply apologize and ask for forgiveness. So why don't we just take another minute, um, if God has dredged that person up for you, to really kneel before the Lord and just say, God, please repair the damage and lead me to apologize and ask for forgiveness. Let's pray. As in all things, Jesus is our ultimate model for how we should live. And in this area of words, Jesus is a wonderful model to follow. He never sinned with his words, but what's more important is he spoke life and being and wholeness into other people's lives. He turned a messed up ragtag band of 12 men to a small force that changed the world. How did he do that? Because for as often as Peter acted like a fool, he said on a beach, you know, I love you. I know you love me, Peter, but you need to know I reinstate you. I still see something in you. You and I were not done. So maybe as we close, we should just pray, God, I don't want to just be postured in a way that I avoid sinning with my words, but also impress upon me, compel me to speak life into other people. To name the good I see in people to give words of hope to the people around me, to tell children that they are dearly loved and filled with hope and they have worth beyond how they perform, to tell our spouses, I'm with you to the end, no matter what, and you are beautiful to me. Why don't we ask the Lord to compel us by his Holy Spirit to use our tongues to build up and not to destroy to speak life into others. So let's just end with that. Let's take a minute to pray that and surrender ourselves to him. And then we'll sing.